Welcome to Math Mutation, a podcast where we discuss fun, interesting, or just plain weird corners of mathematics that you would not have heard in school. Recording from Hillsborough, Oregon, this is Eric Seligman, your host. And now, on to the math. Math Mutation 106, Pre-Newton Nonsense. Before we start, I'd like to mention that I finally created a Facebook fan page for this podcast. You can reach it through a link at mathmutation.com or just search for it on Facebook. If you're listening and are on Facebook, please sign up as a fan. It'll be nice if I can get a solid majority on the site who are not related to me. Anyway, now on to today's topic. We're all familiar with the basic concepts of classical physics that they teach us in high school. The law of inertia, where all objects in motion stay in motion unless acted upon by a force. The law of acceleration, where acceleration of an object is proportional to a force divided by its mass. And the law of reciprocal actions, where every action has an equal and opposite reaction. These laws lead to nice simple equations that describe the actions of motions and forces on objects, such as F equals MA, force equals mass times acceleration, and S equals one-half AT squared plus VIT, describing the distance traveled by an object under acceleration. Now these laws are known to be not quite right, as proven by Einstein early in the last century, but they're still really good approximations of the real world and mathematically correct under some basic assumptions about the universe. What did people believe before the scientific revolution led by Galileo and Newton? Since the 4th century BC, the dominant theories of physics in the Western world were those written by the Greek philosopher Aristotle. The law of natural places said that every object had a natural altitude where it wanted to rest, a special case rule since gravity wasn't understood as a general force. The law of rectilinear motion said that any force would cause motion at a constant speed. The velocity-density relation said an object's velocity was inversely proportional to the density of a medium. Vacuums were thought to be impossible, as nature abhors a vacuum. Objects would immediately move into any vacuum temporarily created, and a true vacuum would be impossible because all objects would move into it at infinite speed. Thus, the space between planets must be filled with a special substance or an ether. Aristotle also had some interesting theories about chemistry. His continuum principle stated that matter could not be made up of small atoms, because then, by definition, there would have to be a vacuum between the atoms, and his other theories showed that this could not be possible. But he did believe that all objects were made up of four elements in proportion, earth, air, fire, and water. Those of you who played Dungeons and Dragons, or at least geeky enough to have played it at one point, are probably familiar with this set of elements. The elements were intimately connected with his gravity-like law of natural places. Fire would seek its natural place in the air, while the other elements wanted to sink downward. We are lucky enough to have an atmosphere at our altitude because of its mix of air and fire elements. These theories led to a few problems. One of the most obvious ones was how to explain the use of a bow and arrow. Once the arrow leaves the bow, there's no more force on it, so how does it remain in motion? Under Newton, we know that its natural tendency is to continue in motion until an external force slows it down. But Aristotle had to come up with a convoluted explanation. The rapid motion forward of the arrow created a temporary vacuum, and air rushing into it pushed the arrow forward further. A similar explanation showed how a cat can leap into the air. Now, I know my late cat Rocky could jump pretty fast when trying to destroy our ceiling light fixtures, but I don't think he ever created a vacuum. So what were the set of equations that Aristotle's laws led to? Well, back in Aristotle's day, equations were not seen as an integral part of a physical theory. Some of his principles might seem to lead to equations, for example, where he states that velocity is inversely proportional to the density of a medium. One can write it as v equals k over d, where v is velocity, k is some constant, and d is the density. But the primary reason why Aristotle's theories weren't usually expressed as equations was probably that they were so far off from reality 
that any attempt to precisely assign values based on real-world observations and plug them into equations based on his theories would inevitably fail. This didn't really bother Aristotle, though. As typical for his day, he was notoriously unconcerned with confirming his theories through actual experiment. Observations were just a basic starting point, and then he derived the rest of his theories through pure philosophy. In some areas, this led to pretty ridiculous conclusions. For example, another of his theories said that women have fewer teeth than men. This probably tells us something about the type of woman that Aristotle liked to associate with. Now, we shouldn't be too harsh on Aristotle. It's not like other people in his day were any more scientifically rigorous, and the proposition that we should evaluate and document the laws of nature was itself a major contribution. He even got a few things almost right, like his descriptions of buoyancy and fluids or of air resistance for falling objects. But we should also be grateful that future scientists like Galileo and Newton realized that we needed more careful observations to create truly valid physical theories, and that later developments of modern mathematics enabled us to describe these theories well enough to reproduce and understand their implications. And this has been your Math Mutation for today.